Good morning. I'm excited about this morning. We are concluding our study of the Italian prophet Malachi. That's for you, Gary. Um, <clears throat> Malachi is really one of my favorite Old Testament characters. I, I, I love the, the book, even though it's been a heavy book. For those of you that have been here listening um, for the last several weeks, uh, this is not an easy message, the oracle of the Lord uh, through the prophet Malachi. Uh, but uh, today we do come to the series conclusion. Uh, next week, I've got a special message for us as we get ready to move into Thanksgiving. And then uh, Thanksgiving, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, uh, two weeks from today, we have our special Thanksgiving praise service. So really looking forward to that. John Wesley uh, was asked once that um, if Jesus came back the same time tomorrow, um, what would you want to be doing? What would you do? And he said, in effect, I would go to bed and sleep. I'd wake up in the morning. I'd go to work. I would continue on with my work. I'd come home, um, be with my family, talk with them, pray, go back to sleep again. He said, I would want him to find me doing what he appointed for me to do. And I thought, that's good advice. And I think it's very fitting, too, as we come here to the end of the book of Malachi. And this morning, we're going to be covering just the last three verses of chapter 4. And uh, it is a conclusion to the book. We finished the sixth disputation last week. Uh, but these last three verses do a good job of summarizing the entire message of the book. And it's simply this. Remember the law. Remember the law. And remember the promise of Elijah and the day of the Lord. God's last words to the nation of Israel serve as a reminder to us today to live faithfully and expectantly. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for your servant Malachi. Lord, thank you that you chose to speak through him to your people, and you are speaking still to us today in 2021. And Lord, we've gleaned so much from our study. We've been challenged on so many fronts, and as we we look at these last few verses, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would continue um, to guide us, to lead us, to be our teacher, and to just help us to remember what is required of us, and that we would give you our all, that we would give you our first and our best, and that you would be pleased with us. So, Lord, just help me this morning as I bring forth your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So Malachi was the last prophet until John the Baptist arrived on the scene 400 years later. Now, you have to understand, the nation of Israel was used to having God's spokesmen around. 
They didn't often listen to them, but they were around, and God spoke. But now, for 400 years, there would be silence. You know, I was just trying to put that into perspective. It's like if, if we live to be 100 years old, that'd be four generations, 400 years. And I, then I was thinking, well, what if we were God? What if you were God? And you knew this was going to be the last message that you were going to give your people. What would you say? What would you want them to know? What would your final words be to them? That's a good question. Well, we have the answer because it's right here in the book of Malachi. And... It's, it's, it, it, when you understand that God's divine revelation was about to come to a close, at least for a time, then it makes sense that in these last three verses, what we see are two charges to the people. And the first one is remember the law. Remember the law or the instruction of Moses which really wasn't the instruction of Moses as, as much as it was the instruction of God. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Malachi chapter 4. We're going to look there at verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Now, the law of Moses or the Mosaic law... Um, refers to the Torah or to the Pentateuch or to the first five books of the Old Testament. But sometimes the law is also referred to as this, the Ten Commandments, the moral law. And I think here is where, uh, for us, the application comes. And Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. And you know what happened at Mount Sinai. Moses received what? The Ten Commandments, okay? So the admonishment to remember the law here actually sums up the first three disputations in this book, if you remember what, what they were. But what does it mean to remember? What does it mean to remember? Now, I remember certain sayings that include the word remember. Remember the Alamo, Right? Remember the main. Does anybody remember that? Remember the Lusitania. Remember Pearl Harbor. Remember 9-11. So what do we mean when we say remember these things? Well, very simply, don't forget. Don't forget what happened on those days. Why? Because there are a lot of lessons to be learned in each of those things. And it should impact how we live moving forward. Remember the law. It means to pay attention, keep in mind, meditate on, and to obey. The Lord is calling his people to live lives of obedience. He simply isn't saying, hey, guys, I want you to, you know, um, re remember those laws that I gave you and just, 
you know, just, just from time to time, think about them. Don't do anything with them, but, you know, just remember them. Have a fondness for my laws. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying that, that we are to live our lives according to his word, not according to our own desires and wisdom. And if they desire God's blessing, they cannot afford to diverge from them. They must not disregard God's commands. Now, I want you to consider the words of uh, Joshua. And you know who Joshua took over from Moses after Moses had died. He led the nation of Israel after Moses. And in Joshua chapter 1, verse 7, we read, as he's speaking to the people, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Now, just taking this one verse, I want you to see some things here. He says, be careful to do. It's not be careful to know. Be careful to study. Be careful to memorize. It's be careful to do. And it's not just that we are to do, but we're to be careful in our doing. We're to do it rightly. We're to, do, we're to be circumspect. We are to pay close attention to God's law so that we do it in the way that God wants us to do it. We must be careful to do. And then it's, it, it's, he says, according to all the law. Not just some parts of it. Not just the parts that we like. And let's face it, there are some parts in the Bible we don't like. There are some commands, there are some things we wonder about, we question, but God's word is not a smorgasbord, you know, that you can kind of go around and go, oh, I'll take a little bit of this, a little bit of this, hey, I like a little bit of this over here. I like those commands. I don't like these, so I don't think I'm going to obey those. We are to be careful to do according to all the law. And then he says, we do not turn from it, from the right or to the left. So the idea here is we're moving in a straight line. We're not getting sidetracked. We're not being detoured, pursuing other things and getting off course, off track. But, but we are to stay on a beeline towards God, being obedient to him. And if the people wanted blessing in their lives, they must be careful to do according to all the law and not deviate it. And then, of course, the promise is, then you will have success. Then you'll have success. Notice verse 8. Verse 8, and my clicker, for some reason, did not advance, so you'll have to be on it back there, guys. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. You know, as, as I get a little older, my memory gets a little fuzzy. can't afford to get fuzzy with God's word. Need to remember. And Joshua is helpful here. God's word should be continually on our lips. 
And if it's going to be continually on our lips, then it must be continually in our mind. It must be continually in our heart. We need to read it, meditate on it, memorize it, quote it, share it, pray it, sing it. Why? Well, do you see those two little words, so that? So that we may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. If God's word is not in us, we will not be able to live it out. We will not be able to obey it. If we don't know it and know it well, we cannot live a life pleasing to God. We we immerse ourselves in God's word so that we might obey him, so that we might be pleasing to him. Scripture says, I have hidden thy word in my heart, what? That I may not sin against you. I've got to know what is sin. Your word tells me it is a lamp unto my feet. It shows me the path of righteousness. How easy it is to stray from that path, isn't it? So we must continually saturate ourselves with God's word. Then we will make our way prosperous. Then we will have good success. And just for those of you who are wondering, no, this does not mean you'll become rich and famous. Now, God may bless you monetarily with with material things, but there are so many other things in life that we are blessed with, that we prosper with. We prosper spiritually. We prosper in relationships to one another. We we prosper uh, in our health. There's so many different ways that we can prosper. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm chapter uh, 1, verse 1 through 4. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. It should come as no surprise to us here at the end of Malachi that God would bring his message to them uh, to a close with an admonition to remember the law. Because at every point throughout this book, God has charged them and challenged them and rebuked them over their disobedience to his law. And we too ought to remember the law. Not Israel's ceremonial laws, not the judicial laws, but the, the moral law, and in particular, the Ten Commandments. See, God does not change. Therefore, his laws do not change. Now, some will say, um, but Paul, we, we've been set free from the law. New Testament says that. We're not under the law. We're, we're under grace. That's true. But we have to understand what that means. We have been set free from having to keep the law 
or to keep the requirements of the law in order to be justified. See, there's, there's a difference here. If you're, you're keeping the law, you're trying to obey the law so that you can be made right with God. That's what we've been set free from. We are saved by grace through faith. It is not of our own doing. It is not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. But that in itself does not nullify the law. Think about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And then Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 31, Well then, if we emphasize faith, does this mean that we can forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. See, God's grace frees us from the demands of the law, but it still reveals to us God's will for our life and how he wants us to live. He still wants us to have no other gods before him. He still doesn't want us to take his name in vain. He still doesn't want us to murder one another or to steal from one another or commit adultery or covet things. He still wants us to honor our father and our mother. Do you see where I'm going with this? Romans chapter 7, verse 12, Paul writes, The law itself is holy, and its commands are holy and right and good. Now, there's a couple of things I want to share about God's law that's important for us as Christians. The moral law reveals to us the character of God and how he wants us to live. See, each of God's commands to us tell us something about who he is and how he wants us to live our lives. It is a reflection of God himself. And actually, in giving us the law, he has given us a way to become more like him. Now, some of you may have heard me share this before, but I I call it the 3P principle, Behind every precept or command that God gives is a greater or larger principle. And behind every principle in Scripture is the person of God himself. Just as a couple of examples for you. Um, We're not to bear false witness. We're commanded not to bear false witness. What's the principle behind that? Truthfulness, honesty, and the person behind the principle is God himself who is a truthful and honest God. Um, Take another one. Uh, uh, Thou shall not kill. Thou shall not do murder. There's a principle underneath that, too, the sanctity of life. God is life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
Every command that God gives us, we can find ultimately it's a reflection of God. And as we obey his word, we actually reflect who God really is. And again, that shouldn't surprise us either because we were created in the image and likeness of God. We were created to reflect God to the world. But the moral law not only reveals the nature of God and how he wants us to live, the moral law reveals to us our sin and our need for grace. And that's probably the point most of us are most familiar with. In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says this, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. A little bit later, four chapters later, Paul writes, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I could not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, thou shalt not covet. So the law reveals to us our sin and how far short we fall from God's standard, which is perfection. We are not made right by keeping the law. And even if we could, we can't. Even if it was theoretically possible to do it, we can't because we're sinners. We've all fallen short of God's glory, and the standard is perfection. Jesus said as much in the Gospels. He says, be ye therefore perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. And boy, I ceased being perfect a long time ago. And I'm pretty sure you have too. James says, if you break one part of the law, you're guilty of breaking the whole thing. So if you think you're going to get in because your good works outweigh your bad works, I got news for you. One slip up is going to ruin it, for, ruin it for you. And the truth is, psychologists tell us today, we, human beings, we forget 99% of the things that we've done wrong. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says this, We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Keeping the law cannot save us, but it can show us our need for grace. And it can reveal to us our need for a Savior. And those of us who have been born again now have the power to obey the law. Not as a means of trying to earn God's favor, but as an expression of our love for him. We obey God's commands because we have been redeemed from the curse of the law. And we have been made righteous by the blood of Christ. Psalm 19, one of my favorite psalms, starting in verse 7. And there was just too much scripture to put on screen, so please just listen attentively here. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, Rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. 
The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. That's what Malachi is getting to in these final words. Remember the law. So the first charge he gives them is to remember the law. The second charge he gives them is to remember the promise of Elijah and the day of the Lord. Verse 5 back in Malachi. Behold, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Some of your translations may read terrible or dreadful. Awesome to me is kind of a positive word, but it's not going to be a positive day for many people. He says, the prophet Elijah will come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, God has already talked about this day. He's he's already talked about it, but now he comes back to it again. And these promises that are given here um, are not promises that are widely agreed upon. In fact, uh, a lot of rabbis to this day uh, still debate what this is all about. Who who is he talking about? Who is this Elijah? Is, Is it Elijah himself? Um, you know, uh, now that John the Baptist has come, is it John the Baptist? Is it one of the two witnesses mentioned in the book of Revelation? Is this a prophecy that has one fulfillment, two fulfillments, multiple fulfillments? I am going to venture out into some uncharted territory this morning. Uh, And I am going to say it right now. I'm not being dogmatic here. I'm going to just tell you what I think. What I believe the scripture is saying, if uh, you have some wisdom, insight, can help me understand this better, would love to hear from you. But let's turn over to the New Testament for a moment. Luke chapter 1, verse 17. This passage, we have the angel Gabriel speaking to Zechariah, the father-to-be of John the Baptist. And this is what he says in verse 17. And he will go before him, to speaking of John, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, this sounds very much like the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and the second half of chapter 4, verse 6. Does it not? So if you keep your fingers there, you can, you can look at it. You can see it. Now turn over to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus is now speaking, and he says this, 
Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And then verse 14, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Sounds pretty clear cut, doesn't it? John was Elijah, right? Jesus said as much. Not so fast. Before we go any further, let me say this categorically. The Bible does not teach reincarnation. Okay? It, it, it doesn't. So if that's what you're thinking, um, don't. Besides the fact um, that um, Elijah never died. If you know his story, he was caught up in the whirlwind. He never died, so there would be nothing to reincarnate anyway. So it can't mean that John is Elijah in that sense. If you are willing to accept it. Now, this is an odd statement. I mean, you think about the context. If you are willing to, well, is he or isn't he? What do you mean? If we're willing to accept it. It suggests that it might not be accepted. To which I then ask the question, why or why now? Why wouldn't it be accepted? It's because those Jews who were familiar with the Old Testament prophecy were actually looking forward to a literal Elijah to come. They weren't looking for him to come spiritually, so to speak, or in the spirit of or power of. They were looking for Elijah, the man. How they would recognize him physically, I don't know. They were able to eventually. We'll get to that in a minute. But um, So they hoped for Elijah to come. So John's identification with Elijah didn't and doesn't necessitate that he actually be Elijah. Rather, the people needed to recognize and respond to him as the forerunner of the Lord spoken of in the book of Malachi. Now, I know that might be a little hard to kind of wrap your mind around. It has been for me as well. But this verse was actually most helpful to me. And that's John chapter 1, verse 21. Because John is asked there, are you Elijah? And you know what his response was? Nope. No. I'm not. Are you the prophet? Nope. Who are you then? I am a voice crying out in the wilderness. You know, make straight the paths of the Lord. Now, if, if your head's starting to spin right now, that you're in good company because mine's been spinning all week as I've been thinking about this. And, um, and all of these passages seem to indicate that John was not Elijah, but that he came in the power and in the spirit of Elijah. He was a type of Elijah, but not even in every way. One of the things that Elijah was known for was what? Miracles. Some big miracles. Well, you know what John 10, 41 tells us? John did no miracle. He performed no signs. 
kind of an odd thing if he was really Elijah. He wouldn't be keeping with the Old Testament motif. It's also worth noting that after John died, it was Moses and Elijah that appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Since I mentioned that, I might as well read verses 9 through 13 of chapter 17 in Matthew. It says, As they were coming down from the mountain, his disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. So think about these words for a moment. Jesus said, Elijah is coming. John is dead. Elijah is coming and will restore future tense. All things. But then he says, he already came. Referring to John the Baptist. So, so how do you reconcile that? How do we reconcile that? John was not Elijah, but he fulfilled at least part of Malachi's prophecy. Let me, let me see if I can hold on just a little bit. Don't, 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 don't get lost here. We know from our previous study in Malachi that the day of the Lord for many will be a day of darkness. It will be a day that burns like an oven, remember? It will consume the wicked. Guess what? That didn't happen at Jesus' first coming. So there's an aspect of Malachi's prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled. It will happen at Jesus' second coming. And the good news here is when you think about it, God didn't have to send Elijah. He didn't have to, to send a warning, in a sense. But God, in his mercy, before that day ever comes, he gives us opportunities to repent of our sin. He sent Elijah. He sent John the Baptist. He sent Jesus. Jesus is coming back. But we've already had 2,000 years in which to bend our knee to King Jesus. God is so merciful, so long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's what God is after. God says in verse 5 that he will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. For what purpose? It says to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the hearts of children to their fathers. And we know that this was fulfilled in the ministry of John the Baptist, at least in part. So I think, and I want to underscore, I think, I think the best way to understand Jesus' words in Matthew 17 about Elijah future coming and his already come, having already come, is to view his coming like we do Jesus's. Jesus came his first time 2,000 years ago, but he's coming again. And I think that's what's going to happen with Elijah. Only this time, 
Elijah shows up the second time in person. Let me tell you why. In Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 through 12, we read about the two witnesses that go before the Lord. And if you read that carefully, you see the description of them very much fits Moses and Elijah. We don't know with for certainty, but when you read the miracles that they perform, they sound very much like the miracles that Moses did and that Elijah did as well. And for this reason, many scholars believe that the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. So I am inclined to think that just as prophecies related to the Messiah are fulfilled in two stages, I believe the prophecies mentioned in Malachi over Elijah are also fulfilled in two stages. So, Malachi then blends them together in a way that at first glance we don't see them. But if you look back at Malachi chapter 3, verses 2 through 5, and then chapter 4, 1 through 3, and then verse 5, you will, you will see these particular passages referred to his second coming, while Malachi 3, 1 and 4, 6 refer to his first coming. In fact, verse 5 specifically says, God will send the prophet Elijah, not the spirit of Elijah, before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So that's the best that I can do for you this morning. I'm trying to explain this. And again, if you have some uh, keen insight, I would love to hear from you afterwards. But that is my understanding. And and believe it or not, we've come to the end. But all this talk about Elijah and John, we need to be careful that we don't lose sight of the very last thing that's said in this book. Because it says, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Or other translation says, or come and strike the land with a curse. How would you like that to be the last word you ever heard from God? Not exactly the happiest way to conclude the Old Testament or the last message, but that is essentially what we're given at the end of the book of Revelation, too. We're given a choice, a blessing or a curse. I don't know where you stand spiritually, if you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. But if you don't, don't squander the time God's given you. He has warned us of his coming and what that day will be like. And it could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be next year, a decade, a hundred. We don't know, but we need to be prepared for it. So what are we to take away from this? How should we then live? Well, I think we start by asking, what did God want his people to do back then? How did he want them to live then? Well, I think we've already answered it. Remember the law. Obey my word. And remember the promise of Elijah and the day of the Lord that is to come. 
So what would you do if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow or next week or next year? I hope we would all be doing what he has called us to do. That we're not sitting around twiddling our thumbs, ignoring God's word, not sharing our faith, but rather, as the scripture says, that we are to look forward to and hasten or speed the coming of the Lord. See, I don't think God's got, you know, it marked out on a calendar somewhere on this date I'm coming back. I think he's waiting to see us do what he's called us to do. And once we have done that, then he says, now I can come. They've been obedient. The gospel has gone forth into all the world. People have had an opportunity to hear. I think in some sense, God's waiting on us. And as I've mentioned already several times, that the day of the Lord will be a blessing to those who obey the gospel, but it will be a day of darkness for those who don't. God's last words to Israel serve as a reminder to us to live faithfully and expectantly. And whether we're alive when Christ returns or not, we ought to be found faithful. We ought to live with holy reverence for God and a growing excitement for his return. You know, I, I, you guys know, my wife and I, we love traveling. We love hiking. We love seeing God's creation. But I cannot get lost in this world. As wonderful as it is at times, as beautiful as it is, there, we are citizens of another world and another country. And that's the day we need to be looking forward to. We ought to live with a, 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 with a life that's characterized by his obedience to his word. And if you remember the subtitle from our sermon, talking about half-hearted worship, not only should we be obedient to God's word, we should worship him wholeheartedly with everything that we have. He's worthy. So let me conclude with a quotation from da by Dan DeHaan. He said this, that God's last words to Israel and to the church can give us hope. The assurance of his grace and the warnings from his love will keep us living close to him. May we all live faithfully and expectantly as we await and speed the day of the Lord's coming. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time together this morning, for your, your word to us. Thank you, Lord, that you are so patient, so long-suffering, that, Lord, even after giving this word to your people, 400 years seems like a long time, but you did not leave them without recourse. Lord, you still sent your one and only son. He still went to the cross. And even today, the good news of the gospel of Christ is going out throughout the entire world so that any who are willing to repent and receive him as Lord and Savior, Lord, you promise to save them and to give them the gift of eternal life. So, Lord, I pray that as we go into this Advent season very soon, 
that um, we would have grateful hearts for your first coming, even as we look ahead to your second coming. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.